Something new this morning. We're going to open the book of Galatians today. Galatians chapter 1. Galatians 1 1. I'm continually learning that I are one, that I am one. Sometimes when I read the Bible, when I read the scriptures, it's like opening a five-gallon can of worms that speaks to who I am. You know how it is? It's like, it's so easy for me to be a Pharisee. Maybe you find that, that you've got that struggle too. We're good at it. We, we can make life and, and our lives look like they're good and like they're, they're righteous and holy. And uh, the truth is that in our hearts, even though sometimes we don't mean to do it, we sow the seeds of legalism and, and, and they, they, they sprout up in legalistic thorns and, and forbidding vines that... We just sow those seeds. Two weeks ago, I, was, I went to Georgia where we have a little hunting uh, property that we like to use. It's 100 acres. And I actually had not been there for a full year. Um, we had cameras up and that kind of thing and saw some great uh, game on the cameras and everything else. And we're like, what is wrong with us for not being here? But when we went in, the places where we had bush hogged and where we had herbicide, put herbicide down and everything else were grown back. In a year's time, the blackberry vines were so thick and so thorny that there were places that I did not want to go on my four-wheeler with my elbows in and my knees tucked in tight because those thorns were reaching out and slapping and drawing blood from me. Sometimes our hearts grow up like those woods do. Legalism blinds our eyes. It dulls our spiritual love for Jesus. It makes pride grow in our hearts. Legalism it all too easily becomes like a clipboard of, of spiritual virtue in our lives. And, and it's like we have these check boxes and, and we go through life and, and we look at ourselves or we look at others and we go, check, that's okay. Oh, we, don't, we can't check that. Oh, we can't check. Oh, and we check off how other people perform. We have judgmental attitudes. We have critical looks that we give. We are intolerant at times, and our intolerance and our criticism and our legalism spreads like chicken pox in a family. It is contagious. And it's ugly. Paul writes to the Galatians, and he writes to the Galatian church with, with what I would call hot ink, he, he starts off and he goes straight to the point here in the book of Galatians. He talks to them bluntly and firmly about their false righteousness. In fact, if you, if you look at the theme, if you look at the book as a whole and kind of step back and outline it, um, in chapter 1, verse 6, the sixth verse, the very, the, the very verse after the greeting, what does Paul say there? He rebukes them for deserting Christ. I am astonished 
Paul says. He doesn't ease up either. In chapter 2, he points out that the Christians in, in Galatia had nullified the grace of God in verse 21. In chapter 3, he says they become bewitched by legalism. In chapter 4, he goes on and he says they desire to be enslaved by the crippling disease of legalism. The church at Galatia had my problem had maybe your problem too. So maybe you're asking yourself, what is a Pharisee? You know, dear recovering Pharisee, what, what, is, what does the pastor mean by that? How did I become a Pharisee? I thought I was a Christian. The Pharisees who lived during the time of Christ before and after uh, were very religious people, weren't they? I mean, we know about their religion. They were regular in their worship. They were orthodox in, in their theology. Their, their moral conduct was impeccable. They're good Presbyterians. But something was missing. Something was missing. God was in their, heart, in their minds and in their actions, but he wasn't in their heart. Their religion was a little more than hypocrisy. The Pharisees were hypocrites because they thought that God would do for them depending on what they did for him. You know, they, they, were, they were the kind of people that, that read their Bibles. They were the sort of people who tithed and who prayed and, and who kept the Sabbath. And, and like their salvation depended on it. Well, they failed to understand that God is that God's grace cannot be earned that it is free. It only comes free. And there's a way out of Pharisaism. There's a way out of that kind of mindset. And Paul takes them to that place and points them to it over and over again. It's called the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ has already done everything that was necessary for your salvation and for mine. You can't, you can't add something to your salvation like a surcharge that gets put on uh, something that you buy. You can't, you, can't, you can't do more than what Jesus has already done for us. When we reject our own righteousness to receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ, we become former Pharisees. When we consciously, deliberately say, I am resting in Christ alone for salvation as he's offered in the gospel, we're saying, I no longer trust myself and my ability to find a way to get into heaven. That's why the first vow of membership is where it is. That is the starting place. Recovering Pharisees. Most former Pharisees still have a problem, though. And it's the problem that I struggle with. It's that I try to earn my righteousness. I can't leave my, my old Phariseeism behind. You know, I receive God's grace, but I keep trying to add to it by being better, by doing good, by adding something, by, by being more disciplined, by having a better theological understanding, by having more orthodoxy, by being more... And Jesus has done it all by his free grace. To put it in theological terms, we want to base our justification on our sanctification. 
And when you start to do that, you've made a mess. Because you're a fallen creature and you cannot. It is not possible. Most former Pharisees, most Christians are in recovery, aren't they? We constantly need to be reminded, but there's still something of that old legalist in us. You know, the legalist is the one who says, well, I'm going to work so hard that God will have to accept me. I'm going to do enough good works that those good works on the scales of life are going to outweigh the bad works. There's something in us that makes us want to do that, and it's sin, it's the old nature. So Galatians is written for people like us. I want you to get that this morning. I want, you to, I want you to let that idea sink in. Let me read the scriptures this morning, and uh, we will, um, I'm just going to read the first five verses, but we're going to um, dig into just the first two today, if you don't mind. Let's hear the word of God. Paul, an apostle, not, sent, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from, this present, or from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I ask you this morning that you would enable us to take these few thoughts that Paul has penned in these opening verses and to understand the issues at hand for the church in Galatia, the issues at hand for Christians in Paul's day, and the issue in hand that we have. Lord, help us to, to understand what uh, was going on so that we can make the applications that will come in the weeks ahead. Oh, Lord Jesus, open our eyes to your word. May we see your glory. May we see the, the wonder of what you have done for us as we look at this portion of the word. I ask for your help and for your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. So I was thinking about Paul's letter here, and, and my purpose this morning is really and truly to give you a foundation out of the book of Galatians. So I, I'm thinking about Paul's letter to the church at Galatia, and I'm thinking about how Paul wrote, uh, he wrote 13 other epistles that are in the scriptures, you know, and, and he wrote other letters that we're aware of, and Paul was constantly a letter writer. And I was thinking about that, and, and I've had a little while, I've had a couple of weeks to, to meditate on that idea and think about that. And somewhere along my thinking and uh, along those lines, the recollection came to me of our children and teaching our children to write thank you notes. I don't know. We didn't do too good at that, okay? I'm just going to tell you the truth. In fact, we were terrible at it. And, and, you know, Christmas would come and we would say, now, Susanna or Mary Claire or Elizabeth or Ian, you, you've got to write a thank you note to grandmother. You know, she gave you this nice gift and you need to write her a thank you note. And we would, you know, we would uh, give her grandmother's address and we would say, now, you, you go write a thank you note. And we'd remind them and we would remind them and it would be like pulling teeth. I don't want to write a note. I don't want, you know. And, 
and I thought, that is so much like me. They are indeed genetically flawed, and the genetic flaw came through me. My wife is a gracious, wonderful lady who, if you, know, if you give her a Kleenex, she's going to write you a thank you note. <laughs> My children are much like me. I thought about Paul writing to the Galatian church and, and, and writing out of, a, out of a love for them and that kind of thing. I, I just thought, you know, I am the worst about writing and that kind of thing. Thirteen of his letters are here in the scriptures. And he begins this letter with the form that uh, every other letter of the day uh, in, his, in his age was written in. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. In Paul's day, that was a common, it was common to, to say, okay, this letter is from Paul and this letter is to the churches at Galatia. And usually in the midst of that, there was some sort of a, a statement of appreciation or some sort of statement of, of kindness or something like that. But Paul has taken letter writing in the New Testament church to a new level. He has taken it to, to, a, to an exponential level where he begins to, to describe not only who he is, but, but what his authority is and what Christ has done for him. And he includes the brothers who are with him there uh, as he writes to the churches at Galatia. He, he begins with that description. He mentions those to whom he's writing, and he declares a blessing on them. You know, it's tempting when you're reading your Bible and your devotions, isn't it, to just buzz right through that introduction, to buzz right through that salutation, and to get on to the meat of things, Right? <laughs> I mean, I laid out uh, the sermon series that David and I are going to work through for the next several weeks. And as I began to outline uh, the book of Galatians, uh, I outlined this book in such a way that uh, I had included that I would do the first five verses this morning. And so all week long, with the wedding and everything else, and for the weeks before, I have been thinking... I'm going to take these first five verses and I'm going to work these first five verses over for us for our sermon today. Well, I want to tell you, Friday came and I was working away again on this. This sermon has been worked on for weeks. I, I began working on it and I was like, I can't get through the first verse. I can't get beyond this first verse. There's so much, there's so much here. There's so much, and, and I want to get to the grace and peace and, 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 you know, talk about God wouldn't let me do it. Saturday morning, I'm sitting at my desk. No, Saturday, well, early, early Saturday morning, way before the sun came up, I was sitting at my desk. And I was thinking, I'm going to get through that fifth verse. I'm going to take these first five verses, and I'm going to preach on those first, and God would not let me do it. So we're going to look at the first two verses this morning because God won. And I think it's important. I, I, think, that, I think that I was just being, I don't know, hard-headed. The, there's more here than meets the eye. 
There's more here than you first than you first pick up on when you read this text, especially if, if you're like me, when you read the introductions in your quiet time, I read through them and I go, oh yeah, yeah, yeah I remember that, Galatia, yeah, okay, I know, where he, I know what he's talking about, here, let's go, you know. We need to take a little time. We need to look carefully. We need to be careful. Paul personalizes his salutations. He's, he, he makes it fit the needs of the church, and, and he lays the intentions of what he's going to do. Uh, he, it, it, it contains his intention, if you will. And that's what he does in our text here. So let me take a minute. Let's, ta- let's look at the historical context, okay? The historical context of what Paul is doing here. He just introduces himself. Paul, an apostle. The people in Galatia would know who he was, okay? There's just no doubt about it. That simple introduction was all that he needed uh, for them to recognize him. He was well known by them. Uh, They knew him personally. The Apostle Paul had gone into the region of Galatia. and, And look, we could spend some time talking about whether or not Paul was writing to the specific churches that were in southern uh, part of, of uh, Galatia there, or if they were in the northern province, and there's all kinds of debate and discussion about that. doesn't really matter. The bottom line is, for you and for me, Paul was writing to churches multiple churches. This is a letter that, that would not just go to one church, okay, but would go to many. And he is writing to them uh, out of a knowledge and out of a love for them that, that because he had worked with them, he had done evangelism, he had done teaching. He was the church planter who had come into their region and had begun to develop churches. And he was writing to follow up on his daughter churches or on, his, on his, the work that he had done over the years. Any letter in Paul's day would have begun uh, much like this one did. But normally the, the bulk of the letter, as it's actually penned and written in New Testament days, was written by a scribe. So Paul would be sitting with a scribe, uh, and I used this word several months ago, an amanuensis, okay, which is just a fancy word for a scribe, okay, um, but with someone who was given the, the task, charged with the task of writing down what Paul was saying. And uh, Paul would have dictated this letter uh, to his uh, scribe there, as uh, it was normally done in the day. And uh, at the uh, end of the letter, as was done in his day, he would pick up the pen himself, the quill, and he would write uh, the ending of the letter so that it can be authenticated. So in chapter 6, verse 11, what does Paul do? Paul does exactly that. He picks up the stylus and he adds a sentence or two in autograph. He says, Uh, In chapter 6, verse 11, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand? Paul's signature is on that letter. You see, in their day, just like in our day, there were hackers, there were forgers. There were those who would seek to represent Paul and not really be Paul. And Paul says, look, 
Here's proof written by my own hand. Not only did Paul know these people, not only had Paul lived with these people and, and, and shared the gospel with them and discipled them and been a part of their lives, but they probably knew him well enough that some of them re- could actually recall seeing his own handwriting, I think. Now, that's a pretty cool thought when you think about it because the Apostle Paul was intimate with these people. Forgery was not a question here to the book of Galatians. And uh, even without his authentication, the Galatians would have been in no doubt certain that it was Paul. Everything that happens in the book of Galatians, everything that that is written here uh, from beginning to end breathes Paul. You need to know that this is Paul's, this, this is one of his best letters in so many ways. The Galatians... In fact, Galatians has been described as a rough draft of Romans uh, chapter 3. Sometime you ought to do this. Sometime you ought to take the book of Galatians and you ought to sit down. Maybe in the morning, read the whole book of Galatians in one sitting. It's only six chapters. It won't take long. Take the whole book and just read through it. Buzz through it. And then in the evening, before you go to bed, flip over to Romans and read Romans 3. And see if you don't see something that takes place there. I think it is indeed that uh, this is the rough draft. And it contains so many other Pauline uh, idiosyncrasies that, that along with Philippians or Corinth, the Corinthian letters, it, it's always been regarded as one that belonged indisposable, indis, in, 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 without a doubt, to Paul's core writings. Okay? Scholars typically uh, these days do a lot of work by computers, and so they'll uh, take a, a Pauline text and they'll put it into the computer, and then they'll compare by other with uh, other text by computer uh, the Pauline letters. This is definitely the Apostle Paul writing. Okay, just just there's just no question about that. Having said all that, you know, I mean, it's important, I think, to establish that Paul is indeed the author here. Actually, the one who's the author is not the one who penned this. It's not the one who dictated this. You realize that, don't you? The author of Galatians is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit used the Apostle Paul to write these words or to dictate these words so that they might be written so that you and I would profit from what God was doing in the church in Galatia back in about 50 A.D., by the way. You see, I think Galatians was probably written about 10 to 15 years after uh, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I think Paul wrote this about 50 A.D. You see, Galatians is really... Paul Paul challenges the Galatian church here, and this is a challenging letter because he challenges them with the simple truth that the gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity. It's not just the basics. It is the A to Z. It is the start to the finish. See, I think Paul shows us in this book that the gospel changes everything from top to bottom. The gospel, the message that we is that we are more wicked than we ever dared believe, and that we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. You need to write that down. You need to remember that truth, because there is so much here 
Our sin is more hideous than we can fathom before a holy God. And the grace of God that we have experienced by our salvation in Jesus Christ is way, way better than we can frame our heads around. Galatians is all about that radical change that the gospel makes. And our need for the gospel every single day of our lives so that we quit adding good works to our faith. I'm not telling you not to do good works. We don't need to add those thinking they're going to keep us in Christ. So the Apostle Paul was a church planting missionary. He planted the church, then he left the, the region, and he would continue to supervise those congregations through his letters. Okay? Um, this is the letter that he wrote to the churches in Galatia. There are about three major ideas here, three things from the historical setting I think that you need to understand so that as David and I work through this text with you, um, you'll understand it better. I think the first thing I want, to, want you to understand is that, that what was going on in Galatia, this letter addresses social and racial division that was taking place in the churches there, in that region. This letter, um, uh, the, first, the first Christians in Jerusalem were Jewish people. And the gospel, uh, as it spread from that center of Jerusalem into other cities, uh, increasing number of Gentiles were coming to faith in Jesus Christ. But there were a group of teachers, particularly in the region of Galatia, who believed that their Jewishness was important to maintain. And so they wanted to add or, or they wanted to continue to practice all of the traditional ceremonial customs of the law. They wanted to follow Moses. They wanted to, they wanted to continue as, as Jewish Christians in that sense of the word. And so they taught that these Gentiles, these, these pagans who had come into the faith, who were not Israelites, ought to maintain the Jewish customs of, of things like circumcision and dietary laws for them to be fully accepted. To be a real Christian You've got to be circumcised. To be a real Christian, you have to follow the, the law of Moses. If you really want to please God, then you'll do these things and add them to your faith. Although that specific controversy, frankly, uh, might seem remote. I mean, we don't view our faith as related to circumcision. We don't, we don't, we don't keep the, the uh, Mosaic law and regarding uh, diet, do we? Maybe we could, maybe we should. We don't keep that to keep our salvation. Paul's addressing an all-abiding and, and important truth here. He sees these cultural divisions and disunity in the Galatian church, and he says they are due to a confusion about the nature of the gospel. The, 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 the struggles that the church in Galatia, the churches in Galatia were having was, a, was a, a misunderstanding. It was a confusion of what the gospel really was all about. These Judaizers were saying Christ plus something, and Paul says that's not the way it works. 
these teachers, actually, Paul says, are presenting a whole different way of relating to God, a different gospel, he calls it in verse 6 of the text, like I said a minute ago. It's a different gospel than the one Paul preached. He says that in verse 8. He calls them to, the, to task for that. He unapologetically, he's forcefully taught that they had to, they had to abandon the gospel of Jesus plus something. So it's a timeless letter because we tend to do the same thing, okay? Most obvious fact about the whole historical setting here, maybe it's easy to, to see, maybe it's easy to overlook. The book of Galatians is not simply written to non-Christians, it's not simply about non-Christians, but it's also about believers who need to continually learn the gospel and apply it to our lives, it's not just something for non-believers, okay? We need the gospel. We need it every day. So who gave authority to the Apostle Paul to, to talk to the church in this way? Who was it that, who, who gave Paul the authority to write this church? He was an apostle. What is an apostle? You know what an apostle is, right? A sent one, a messenger. He was given authority. He was a special messenger with a special message. Who sent him? He tells us here in verse 1. Not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. There were some who were disparaging Paul's apostleship. There were some who saying, well, Paul wasn't one of the original 12 who walked with Jesus. You know, you remember Paul's history. You remember that uh, thing that happened when Paul was going to Damascus? And, you know, Paul's not really, he's not one of the apostles. He's kind of, he's kind of second tier. There were those who were saying those kind of things. And Paul establishes, repeats, reminds them that indeed he was an apostle called and appointed by Jesus Christ. Paul's gospel didn't originate with man. It wasn't commissioned by man. He wasn't an ambassador. He was indeed an apostle. His, his gospel and his commission were derived from the risen Christ who met him on the road to Damascus. He too had an opportunity to walk with Jesus. It was just a little different than the others, wasn't it? It was a lot different. One sort of random thing here in Paul's salutation that struck me as I was studying this, this week. Look at verse 2 of the text there. Paul, an apostle, not from men or through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And then verse 2, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. And all the brothers who are with me. And brothers in the ESV version that I'm using here has a footnote. An interesting footnote indeed. Look at, uh, look at what it says. Of course, I'm hoping that you're reading the Greek uh, uh, above the <laughs> English there. And uh, for those of you who have those skills, uh, blessings on you. Um, <clears throat> but that word adelphoi, you can, you can transliterate A-D-E-L, the, the lambda, P-H-O-I, adelphoi. It's, it's a plural word. And it typically is translated in, 
in um, uh, Greek of Paul's day as brothers and sisters, like siblings in a family, that kind of thing. It refers either to, to brothers and sisters, and, and, but here in the text, it particularly, I think, refers to both men and women who are siblings in God's family. Paul's taken that word adelphoi, that plural word that they use for brothers, and he includes sisters as well. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, so let's read that text. What does it say? And all the brothers and sisters in Christ who are with me to the church of Galatia, churches of Galatia. Paul includes his fellow believers as he writes to this church. He's saying, my brothers and sisters authenticate the message that I am bringing to you. We stand together. The same word, by the way, Adelphoi, is used in verse uh, uh, 11 of chapter 1, and it's used in the same way. For I would have you know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that was preached by me was not man's gospel. It's, It's clearly used that way. Now, I am not big into the feminist movement or anything like that, so don't think that's what I'm going for here. But I think that it's important that we see the inclusive nature of what Paul is talking about here. Just don't let that slip by you. By those words, Paul is showing humility too. Paul's saying, look, he, he often referred to those around him as fellow workers, as fellow soldiers, as fellow laborers in the gospel. Paul's not on some kind of ego, ego trip. He, he didn't need to lord it over his companions in order to guard his authority. He included the names of those who were with him in lots of his letters and um, who worked with him, those who, who helped him along. And he does so in here. I've consult, he's basically saying, I've consulted with my fellow ministers and they have heard my doctrine and are in perfect agreement with me. In other words... We as the church, we as the church at large agree on the content of the message of this book that I'm bringing to you this morning. Don't let that slip by you. He uses them as witnesses against Judaizers, against falling back into the trap of earning our righteousness and thinking that somehow we can be good enough. And and by the way, notice that Paul consciously distinguishes himself with respect to the office. Although he treats them as co-workers, he doesn't share his apostolic authority with the church. He has the office. But he does it with humility and grace. The inspired writer is Paul. The Holy Spirit is the one who stands behind him. But the church authenticates Paul's message. So what's the message? What is the gospel? Paul's epistle to the Galatians has been called the Magna Carta of Christian liberty. What in the world does that mean? Well, it means that this is a declaration of independence in very very beautiful terms. We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. There is the summary statement of Galatians. It's Galatians 2, verse 16. You probably ought to highlight that and mark it as as the theme verse of the book. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Whenever the church has understood the gospel message, Galatians has brought life and freedom to recovering Pharisees like us. 
I want to give you a couple of illustrations. The easiest one, the, the one that's probably most familiar to us, took place some, somewhere uh, in the uh, around 1500s, somewhere, for, let's see, between 1483 and 1546 in the life of Martin Luther. It's when Luther was born in 1483 and died in 1546. Luther has been called the father of the Reformation. Uh, and you know Luther's story, don't you? Martin Luther had tried everything he could do, everything he knew to do to be a good Christian. He had done it all. He had worked so hard. He had spent all of his efforts to keep himself in God's good graces. He worked to earn and to keep himself that, that way in his salvation. He said, he writes of himself, he says this, I was a good monk. And kept my orders so strictly that I could claim that if ever a monk were able to reach heaven by monkish discipline, I should have found my way there. All my fellows in the house who knew me would bear me out in this. For if I had continued much longer, I would, what with vigils, prayers, readings, and other such works, have done myself to death. Luther worked so hard to keep himself in the faith that he would have killed himself if it had continued. And you know his story, don't you? I hope you do. It's a great story. You need to watch the movie Luther. If you've never done it, do it. And do, watch the old one. Watch the black and white one. It's really good. You need to know Martin Luther's story. As hard as Luther worked, Luther's conscience wouldn't let him go. The word kept, kept pricking, kept niggling, kept, kept poking at him in such a way that he couldn't leave it alone. He didn't understand the gospel of grace yet, but his breakthrough came when he discovered that Christianity was not about what he had to do for God, but about what God had done for him in Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says following that, that statement I read for you a minute ago. The free grace of God in Christ received by faith. Um, Luther wrote a great commentary on the book of Galatians. And in the preface to that, in, in the preface to that uh, commentary, he says this. I, did not, I do not seek my own active righteousness. I ought to have, to, uh, I ought to have and perform it. But I declare that even if I have it and perform it, I cannot trust in it or stand up before the judgment of God on the basis of it. Thus I embrace only the righteousness of Christ, which we do not perform but receive, which we do not have but to accept when God the Father grants it to us through Jesus Christ. Luther got it at long last. Well, so what's cool about that, I think, is it about 100 years later? Well, plus or minus. I don't, don't know exactly when. The great Puritan preacher, John Bunyan, is, is, is writing his spiritual autobiography. His autobiography is called uh, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And Bunyan describes how he obtained an old, beat-up copy of Luther's commentary on the book of Galatians. And as, as, as John Bunyan uh, writes his autobiography, 
he talks about uh, the fact that he was surprised how old the book was and even more surprised when he read it. And I want to quote him. He says, I found my condition is in his experience so largely and profoundly handled as if his book had been written out of my heart. I do prefer this book of Mr. Luther upon the Galatians, excepting the Holy Bible, before all the books that I have ever seen. A hundred years later, Luther's commentary on the book of Galatians, where he has grasped the whole idea that we add nothing to our salvation, it is only by grace through faith alone, touches and reflects what God has done in John Bunyan's heart. And I want to say to you, that over 500 years later, it has done the same thing in my heart. God's Word and understanding the grace of Jesus Christ is the most liberating impact and influence in, in any believer's life. We've got to grasp the book of Galatians. We've got to understand all that Christ has done for us. The church is always full of recovering Pharisees who need to receive the gospel again, if not for the first time. I've been a pastor for a long while. I've known lots of Pharisees, and I've known lots of recovering Pharisees. You know, in the New Testament days, they were hypocrites. They thought what God depended, what God did for them, depended on what they did for God. They worshiped. They, they worked hard, they were orthodox, they were moral, but they didn't understand that grace can't be earned. Grace can't be earned. It's a gift. That alone transforms you and me into ex-Pharisees, into recovering Pharisees, if you will. Because here's the problem. I find myself going back to it, don't you? I didn't have my quiet time this morning and God's not blessing. I didn't spend my regular time in prayer today and I just feel hollow. I didn't do and we've become to almost be superstitious in our beliefs. Ex-Pharisees always struggle to leave legalism behind. God loves us. But we secretly feel his love and our salvation are contingent on how we're doing in the Christian life. We constantly have that theological problem of basing our justification on our sanctification. I think um, the Apostle Paul would have said quit it. I think that's what I would need to hear. Quit it. Remember. Remember what Christ has done for you. Luther knew our struggle. Bunyan knew our struggle. The Christians in, in uh, Galatia knew our struggle. Leave it behind. Oh, the solas are beautiful, aren't they? Christ alone Faith alone, scripture alone, grace alone, the glory of God only.
indeed. Let's live that way. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that it doesn't depend on me. Thank you that it doesn't depend on my good works. But my salvation, my security, my walking day to day for Christ is all out of grace. Help the message of grace to penetrate my heart. Help me to leave my pharisaical attitudes behind. Oh, Lord, it's not a license to sin. It's a license to revel in goodness and grace. So, Lord, help us to live that way, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.